The big challenge for visualization designers and for everyone working with data is to recognize how our own decisions to depict neutrality are just that. They're just decisions. And since we're already making decisions, the challenge is to ask how we might make different decisions that could help work towards justice. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Enrico Bertini and I am a professor at NYU in New York City where I teach and do research in data visualization. That's right, and I'm Moritz Schifana and I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the countryside in the beautiful north of Germany. Yes, and on this podcast, we talk about data visualization, analysis, and more generally, the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that together with a guest we invite on the show, except this time, that's a special, <laughs> <laughs> that's a special episode for the end of the year. That's true. So we don't have a guest, <laughs> but a couple of guests, and you'll, you'll hear from all of them later on. But before we start, just a quick note, our podcast is listener-supported, so there are no ads. But that also means if you do enjoy the show, please consider supporting us. It's the end of the year. It's a good time to give. You can do that with either <laughs> recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories, or you can send us one-time donations. It's like a little present almost on paypal.me slash data stories. <laughs> Yes, we have to create a virtual Christmas tree. That would be that would be something. <laughs> so what I was saying is that it's not the usual episode. It's the end of the year episode. And uh, if you are an old timer of this show, you know that at the end of the year, we always do something different. And for this year, what we did was to ask a number of professionals around the world to comment on specific areas of development of data visualization. So what we're going to do is to play the recordings that these great people sent to us about the major developments in a given area in data visualization. Yeah, and we asked them for three trends in this specific area and uh, what they found noteworthy in the year, but also one central challenge. And uh, that was super fun to compare uh, what everybody talked about. Some things popped up in every second statement almost, you'll see uh, when you listen to all of them. And we just love to have all this variety of people represented. In the past, sometimes we did like smaller year-end rounds with a couple of guests and uh, then we did the around the world episodes but this time we have i think 10 or 12 different people and we we just love to bring a variety of perspectives on the show yeah without further ado i think uh, we can just bring on our first guest basically it's a bit like a mailbox message you'll hear <laughs> and first up is alberto cairo who some of you might be familiar with uh, he's been a, a guest of the show a few times he's written uh, numerous books on data visualization um, most lately, how charts lie. And uh, we asked him to comment on the topic of development in data literacy and visualization education. Hi, Enrico. Hi, Moritz. 
Thank you so much for inviting me to talk a little bit about new developments in visualization literacy and, and education. My name is Alberto Cairo. I teach at the University of Miami. I teach data visualization and information design. I've been a journalist for many years, working in news organizations in Brazil and in Spain and in the United States. And I'm also the author of several books. The latest one is titled uh, How Chats Lie. So anyway, so new new developments in, in literacy. I think that 2019 has been a very exciting year for many different reasons. There have been new books, new tools, new publications being launched and new educational initiatives. And I fear that I will not be able to cover all of them. So I, I, I apologize in advance if I am uh, if I forget anyone who has done anything significant in these uh, in these areas it is difficult to keep up with all the new things in the world of visualization these days but i will do my best so first of all uh, publications so the first one that i would like to talk about is a nightingale from the data visualization uh, society if i'm not wrong nightingale was launched in the middle of the year and what they do it's a it's a publication that uh, appeared on medium it's easy to find on Medium, and they publish articles every every single week uh, by different authors. And I think that is a great initiative because it shows the the scope and also the depth of the uh, uh, different fields that use visualization on a, on a regular basis. Uh, I follow them very very closely, and I try to read every single article that they publish. And the the quality level in general is uh, on average quite is quite great. I think that. Um, it really contributes to the uh, democratization of uh, data visualization, which, as you know, is one of the aims, one of the main aims uh, of my career uh, is precisely to make visualization more visible and more accepted and more widely adopted by the general public. Another online publication that I would like to highlight, although I don't remember if it was launched in 2019, but I'm going to mention it anyway, it's also on Medium and it's called a Multiple Views, Visualization Research Explained. And several friends of the podcast are involved in this initiative. So if you visit it, you will see names such as uh, Robert Cosara, Jessica Holman, Matt Kay, etc. Multiple views, what it does, I think that is wonderful. What they do is to essentially take research uh, that originates in, in academia, uh, in departments of computer science, uh, data science, statistics, etc., related to data visualization, and they try to translate that research. They try to they try to explain what those papers, those posters, etc., what they mean and how what they say can be applied to the practice, to the daily practice of visualization. So I would encourage people to take a look at it if they can. Uh, we should also mention uh, tools, new new developments, new new libraries, new programming languages, etc. We we could I could spend the entire time that you gave me talking about these, but I, I think that I would just focus on uh, new developments in in, in point and click tools. So such as for example, I don't know, Tableau for example now allows you to do animation in the within the tool, which is a kind kind of interesting. I have not tried that out, but apparently I've seen some examples and it looks really great. And then, you know, freemium tools such as a Data Wrapper or Flourish, they have incorporated uh, new uh, new abilities and they have made a lot of progress. 
Um, and then uh, open source tools, for example, uh, row graphs. Uh, row graphs um, originally created by the uh, Density Design Lab uh, in Italy at Politecnico de Milano. Um, they launched a crowdsourcing campaign recently and they reached their goal. They wanted to uh, get around 30,000 euros, if I'm not wrong. And the last time that I checked, they already got 35,000 euros, which is more than they, they needed. And apparently, they are going to use this money to greatly improve the tool. Uh, you can still contribute to this crowdsourcing campaign, by the way. So if you have ever used a row graphs in your daily practice, and I know that many people have done that, you know, I would consider giving them, you know, 10 bucks, 20 bucks, five bucks, whatever you can afford. I contributed myself just because I use row graphs in my classes and I teach the tool to my students. And so I feel that I shouldn't take advantage of the tool um, without giving back a little bit, right? I could also mention uh, new books. There have been uh, tons of new books being published in 2019. There is the, the second edition of Andy Kirk's book, for example. But I would also like to emphasize books that I believe contribute to this goal of a popularizing and democratizing data visualization, books that can be read uh, not only by specialists in data visualization, but, but by anybody who wants to enter the field. So the most recent one that I have seen is uh, Ben Jones's uh, Avoiding Data Pitfalls. I think that it's a great uh, introduction to the main mistakes that we may make whenever we analyze or we visualize the data. It's a fun book to read. And it is also a very, it's a very warm a book, a very personal one, because Ben is great at highlighting the mistakes that he has made. He's very good at recognizing those mistakes and, and learning from them. Um, so the, the book reads as a sort of like a personal story. And I think that that is wonderful. I think that we need more personal stories in, in, in data visualization books that feel, again, more humane in one way or, you know, closer to the daily practices of people rather than being sort of like, you know, general introduction to data visualization principles. I, I like to see the person who is writing the book. And I think that Ben's book uh, is great at that. You can really hear Ben describing mistakes that he has made throughout his career. I could also mention uh, Stephanie Evergreen's uh, data visualization sketchbook and called Nussbaumer's Storytelling with Data Let's Practice. Uh, these two books uh, basically focus on the focus on the practical side of things. So they encourage you to draw graphics and to learn from that from that drawing. Uh, if, if you have read Stephanie's or, or Cole's uh, previous books, um, I would encourage you to, to take a look at these as well, because they work really well as uh, complements to their original books. I would also mention my own How Chats Lie, which is a, an introduction to uh, data visualization for the general public. Uh, it's not a book for, for specialists, it's more for general readers. It's more than being a book about how to become a better visualization designer, it's more a book about how to become a better visualization reader, a better reader of charts. So it's a manual, a manual on how to read uh, charts. I would also like to highlight, you know, podcasts. So um, not that any new podcast has appeared this year, if I'm not wrong, but, you know, it's always good to uh, acknowledge and recognize and highlight the work of people who publish uh, their podcasts with interviews and comments on a regular basis. So uh, call Newsbombers podcast, Ali Torben's, uh, John Schwabish's, 
Miko Yuk's Analytics on Fire, or even your own, your own podcast. I think that you are publishing, I think that once a month or even a couple of times a month. So I think that that's, that's encouraging and, and, and that is absolutely great. And then uh, my recent MOOC. So recently I, I, I did a, a massive open online course called Data Journalism and Visualization with Free Tools, which is a basically an introduction to how to gather data, download data, analyze data, and then visualize data, which was, a, it was a MOOC hosted by the Knight Center at the University of Texas uh, in Austin. And it was uh, sponsored by, by Google. And uh, more than 12,000 people participated. That doesn't mean that 12,000 people completed the course, but more than 12,000 people uh, signed up for the course and at least took a look at part of its materials. And I think that that really shows that visualization, or so I hope, is becoming mainstream. And it really encourages me to keep working on this task of democratizing it even further and popularizing it even further. Yeah, I think this this last point that Alberto covered, the success of courses, of course, this is also very close to my art. And knowing that more than 12,000 people took his, his MOOC is, is amazing. There's such a huge interest right now in database. And this is also reflected by the Data Visualization Society. So if there is one thing that stands out, it's like database going big this year. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely <laughs> true. And it's sort of interesting, all these numbers, like 12,000 people in a MOOC, the Database Society has 10,000 people, yeah, we have like 15,000 15, listeners. So I think there's like a really solid five figures number of total data nerds out there, which is really cool. And and it's just growing. I, I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which brings us to our next guest, or our next mailbox message, if you will. Uh, this one's from Amelia Wattenberger. Amelia is sort of a newcomer in the field. She's a she's a great front-end developer, and she's now super excited about data visualization and does great work. And I think she's uh, also a big fan of the Data Visualization Society, but we'll uh, hear from her herself. Hi, my name is Amelia Wattenberger, and I'm a developer and designer focused on data visualization. 2019 was a fantastic year for DataViz, and one of the most exciting new developments is a new organization called the Data Visualization Society. And if you're not already a member, I'd highly recommend checking it out. The main way I interact with it is a Slack channel, which currently has something like 8,000 members. And it's a great resource for things like asking questions, seeing work from DataViz professionals of different walks of life, learning about upcoming events, getting feedback on your own work, and connecting with other DataViz newcomers, and maybe even finding people to team up with. Another thing I'm really excited about is especially great for designers. So there's a vector design tool called Figma that's essentially a modern collaborative Adobe Illustrator. And they opened up their platform a few months ago to let developers create plugins. So right away, I and a few others have created data visualization plugins so a designer can start playing with data in their designs without ever leaving their design tool. And this is huge for designers who want to work with data to instantly see how any data set looks as a timeline or a scatter plot or a bar chart. And it really cuts down the feedback loop between ideation and seeing how their actual data looks in that format. The last thing I want to mention is a little bit more general. I'm constantly impressed by the sheer number of great tutorials and resources that are available for free online, whether it's a walkthrough of a specific project or a tutorial of a specific technique. 
So, for example, D3JS is the de facto library for creating data viz on the web, but it's massive and can be super overwhelming to people who are just starting to learn it. So I created a resource that gives a bird's eye view of the library so people can understand what D3 can be used for, what the different parts are, and focus on learning specific parts without getting lost. So while they might not be new, there were tons of fantastic free resources created this year for learning and growing your data viz skills. One challenge that I would love to see get more attention is cultivating an awareness of where data comes from. I know a lot of people who aren't necessarily well-versed in data viz consider data a kind of ground truth. So for example, they'll see a visualization and encode any insights as facts without wondering how the data were collected. So if it were from a survey, they don't think about how those questions were worded or what biases might be present in a political poll or even thinking about where the traffic data on Google Maps comes from. So I would love for data visuals to put more emphasis on the source of the data and maybe even detail the ways in which it might be biased or misconstrued instead of, say, just putting a footnote at the bottom of an article. Yeah, great points. And for me, it's super interesting to hear from newcomers in the field, like how they perceive now what's going on and also how they find a start in data visualization. And I think it's really encouraging to hear that there's this like really, really great uh, community with the Data Visualization Society that helps people get started. There's new tools. And also people start out already with a critical perspective straight from the get-go, which uh, we had to acquire <laughs> after our initial optimism <laughs> in the hard way. And yeah, thinking back about the decade, to me, it's really, you know, it's 2020, so it's it's even a decade change. It's yeah, insane. yeah. So, <laughs> We're getting old, I was man. really thinking... <laughs> Yeah, and it's sort of like the rise and the fall of of nerd culture or hacker culture, I think, right? I mean, if you think back 10 years ago, how optimistic yeah. everybody was, and and now it's all a bit different, yeah. at least more complicated, at least more complicated. <laughs> yeah, But exciting to see new people like move into the field and, and, and kicking ass. Yeah, and I just want to say it's also great what she mentioned, that there's so much material out there. If you want to learn how to do database, I mean, it's there's so yeah. much out there. And I think, um, so Amelia did, didn't actually mention her book, but I, I want to do it because I really like her oh, book. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Full Stack D3 and Data Visualization. It's a different angle from other books, very uh, much more on the technical side of it. And But it's, it, it's a beautiful book with a lot of additional material and code that you can reuse or review so yeah great great resource yeah definite recommendation yeah so next one is an old friend of data stories that's andy kirk um andy who <laughs> andy who <laughs> so andy has been has been around forever um he's the person behind visualizing data and he's also been uh um, teaching data visualization for a long time. He, he has this uh, workshop that he gives ar around the world. And we asked him to focus explicitly on data tools or data visualization tools. So coming up next, Andy Kirk. Hi, Enrico Moritz. This is Andy Kirk offering a reflection on some of the key developments in the area of data viz tools during 2019. I think the biggest news this year was probably the acquisition of Tableau software by Salesforce and also the acquisition of Looker by Google. Now, I'm sure most listeners are aware of Tableau and its standing in the field, its history, its capabilities. 
And it'll be very interesting to see how this merger, this integration of Tableau into the Salesforce technical infrastructure goes, but also how these two different corporate cultures come together, especially given how much reliance and value Tableau has placed on its success through the perhaps exploitation or in a positive way of the community of users, the practitioners out there who are constantly sharing new ideas, new techniques, and the, the way that the vibrancy of Tableau Public in particular has helped to showcase its capabilities. Looker is a tool I was unfamiliar with before this announcement. It's a business intelligence and analytics tool, and perhaps it is less mature as an offering than Tableau would be. And this may offer Google a slightly more greater scope to bend and stretch and adapt Looker and its offerings within the architecture and the ecosystem of visualization and analytics tools that Google are clearly seeking to develop. Elsewhere across the landscape of tools and applications, I feel that two in particular have demonstrated significant growth. They are Flourish and Data Wrapper. For those who are not familiar, both these tools offer accessible means to create complex and elegant data visualizations simply. And over the last 12 months, both have added a wide range of new charting, mapping, and table techniques and templates. Flourish has also added more enhanced interactive techniques. And both tools have bolstered their methods for handling, preparing, and connecting to data. Another significant development, or potentially significant development, I believe, relates to one of my favourite tools, which is Raw Graphs, which is the free web application. They recently announced a campaign to fundraise towards the development of Raw Graphs 2.0. And they're seeking to offer a richer set of potential enhanced features, such as the saving of projects, greater control over the design appearance, and further enhancements of the chart libraries. The fundraising campaign is coming to a close soon, and hopefully they'll hit their targets to enact these changes. And hopefully the tool will continue to be free into 2020 with these rich enhancements that I personally will be very excited about seeing. With regards to a central unsolved challenge, perhaps, I think looking back on 2018's developments, we were quite excited as a field and community around the developments of Data Illustrator from Adobe and Charticulator from Microsoft. I feel that over 2019, neither of those tools have really moved forward yet in terms of the the kind of version 2.0 nature of what you'd expect and hope. Perhaps that's inevitable because they are both initially free offerings and perhaps they are waiting to find out how users are employing these tools into their workflows. But I think hopefully the excitement of raw graph developments will also be seen in terms of where both Data Illustrator and Charticular go in the next 12 months. And just one final footnote, I think, personally speaking, my unsolved challenges with regards to desktop and enterprise tools relates to two key things. How you seamlessly create outputs fit for flexible, multiple digital platforms such as mobile ready, tablet ready and desktop ready. And also a very small thing, but I wish there were further techniques and features available to allow me to use further encodings easily without hacks or workarounds, such as using the stroke or outline of a mark, uh, more ways to use labeling and 
tie that to different data appearances or attributes and also different textures that might be helpful for things like portraying certainties or uncertainties. Okay, guys, thanks very much and all the best to everyone for the next 12 months. So it's true that, as Andy said, these uh, new tools like Data Illustrator and Charticulator could be developed further. And I suspect something is going to happen, right, in the in the next future. Uh, overall, though, I think the major trend is that they're, they're, everything is getting so solid, right? The acquisition of Tableau by Salesforce and Looker from Google and uh, other tools getting much, much more mature, like Data Wrapper and Raw Graphs. Everything is becoming much, much more solid. So I think that's a great trend. Yeah. Flourish is amazing, really, too. We haven't yeah, really exactly. featured it on yeah, the show. Yeah, which is crazy. I'm not sure why. <laughs> but it's, yeah, it's so many people are getting a start now with visualizing data with Flourish. Um, and there's so much you can achieve with just a few clicks. It's It's amazing. Next up is uh, David Bauer. I know David for a long time, actually, and he's been the head of, uh, I think, graphics at NZZ in Zürich. And uh, he has a lot to tell about the development of uh, visual data journalism. Um, and I'm super curious to hear what he has to say. Let's bring him on. Hi, I'm David, head of visuals at NZZ in Zürich. Uh, but only until the end of the year, actually. After that, um, I'm taking some time off before taking on the next challenge. So the one big development in data journalism in 2019 has been, no doubt, uh, bar chart races. No, I'm kidding. I still hate them. Actually, to me, 2019 didn't bring any major leaps forward in data journalism, I think it was rather a continuation of trends that I have seen over the past years, maybe. So first, I'm seeing a move away from data-driven stories to more data-informed or data-inspired stories. And what I mean by that is it's now pretty much a given that data journalists know how to work with data and visualize a bunch of numbers. So instead, there is more focus on people behind the data on storytelling in general, on finding new ways to communicate data. There might even be some sort of reckoning that just because you're showing data doesn't mean you're you're making a point or that your message resonates with the people you're trying to reach. This kind of blends into the second trend, which is climate change. Obviously, this has been the year that finally brought climate change into mainstream awareness, I think. And to me, climate change is a good example for an issue where just showing the data doesn't quite do the trick. It's maybe not a coincidence also that the warming stripes, probably the most iconic visualization on climate change, has in fact not been done by a data journalist. It was done by, by a climate scientist, Ed Hawkins. And I mean, I'm, I'm not saying data journalists did a bad job. I've, I've seen a lot of great pieces on climate change. But I, I do think that we can do better. Data journalists are, are in a great position to explain and report on climate change. And again, think data-informed, not data-driven. The third trend which I see become ever stronger is that data journalism teams invest in tools and in making their work reusable. 
Uh, obviously, my team at NZZ has invested a lot in this, but we're far from alone. Um, SRF data, the Spiegel, Quartz, um, FT, also the Times in London. I like this trend. I think it makes data journalism more sustainable and also more accessible to all sorts of people in newsrooms. And speaking of tools, but this is almost a trend of itself, Data Wrapper is just getting better and better. I think there's hardly a team that has contributed so much to data journalism as they have. It's not just their tools, actually. Also how they raise awareness and help people make good graphics with tutorials, with their weekly weekly charts. One big unsolved issue for data journalism that I see, what should its role in, in newsrooms be? Most newsrooms have have now hired data journalists, but few have figured out what exactly to do with them. Are they wizards who do all kinds of crazy stuff with numbers? Are they reporters, essentially, that are just better with numbers than others? Are they a, a desk like sports or a help desk for arithmophobic journalists? To be honest, I'm not sure. Different newsrooms will certainly find different best answers, but I, I do think that uh, you will not find a good answer if you just look at the data journalists and and then somehow try to figure out what their role should be. Newsrooms as a whole need to decide what level of data literacy they want to expect from everyone who's working there. And once this is clear, you will know whether you, you need expert data reporters or more of a, a data assistant. The one thing that you will never have is a great data journalist who can work on major investigations and do crazy stuff in R and at the same time help other journalists sort a table in Excel. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Super fascinating to hear. And I think, again, it points to really this professionalization of the field and, and seeing how newsroom like the NZZ or others are really now developing the tools and using professional tools to, to really streamline their workflows. And I think we are on the brink of really newsrooms being now digital driven. And we see yeah. the first newsrooms switching over from doing in parallel print graphics and web graphics to be the print graphics being a side product of the web publishing process, which is finally, you know, the case. <laughs> and yeah, there's so much change in the area and, and so much really solid work being done. And yeah. Um, I think so much good input in the, into the whole field has come from data journalism the last few years. So. Yeah, and I think uh, he also mentioned data wrapper again, and others have mentioned it. And uh, again, I think it's one of the major trends that we said is mm -hmm. like this idea that tools are getting much more solid. Data wrapper, the data wrapper team has been has been amazing. Also, <laughs> and it's not yeah. only the tool, right? It's, it's publishing mm -hmm. all these blog posts, additional material, spreading a culture in a way, which mm -hmm. I think it's mm -hmm. uh, it's it's a great development. Yeah. And yeah, speaking of spreading a culture, <laughs> the next the next one is from uh, Elijah Meeks. He's also been uh, making a lot of noise and uh, being uh, around for a, for, a, for a long time. One of the major database figures around, definitely. And um, we asked Elijah to specifically comment on industry since he's a uh, a uh, very authoritative person from industry. And uh, so let's see what he has to say about that. I think 2019 was a banner year for data visualization. 
you saw a couple of major trends that were prominent to me. One was that data visualization is hitting the mainstream. And by that, I mean that we have our first data visualization president. And I've made this claim a few times and people have sort of debated with me because, for instance, Thomas Jefferson famously produced a chart that was quite interesting. But by that, I mean that Donald Trump doesn't seem to be very interested in the actual systems and processes being represented by a chart. He's actually only interested in the chart itself. He doesn't treat it as a supplemental figure. He treats it as the primary source. And you can see that because if he doesn't like the data being represented, he just says, well, use a different kind of chart. Use this kind of map that makes it look like that I have a lot of support. And also, if he doesn't like a particular kind of chart, he thinks, well, if I just change the graphic, then that will change the phenomenon. So for instance, the uh, hurricane map where he took a Sharpie and he added to it. And so I think that's a real remarkable situation and very different from previous leadership, at least in the United States, that, that I've seen. You also see Michelle Real's book, where instead of it being one of these sort of classic data visualization coffee table books, which is typically a collection of uh, historical charts or modern design work, you see this from, for instance, uh, The Book of Trees and The Book of Circles by Manuel Lima that are trying to show you interesting data visualization design for you to either be inspired by or just to sort of enjoy. Instead, Michelle Real has, has put together custom data visualizations using rather standard charts, Venn diagrams and line charts and bar charts and those kind of things to represent aspects of her life and aspects of politics and society and things like that that she finds particularly interesting. I think it's incredibly compelling. And it's another one of these emanations of data humanism that we just see more and more. And on that topic, you see Georgia Lupi, who not only has um, taken a very prominent role at a major design firm in New York, but also has released a fashion line that has all of these data visualization elements in it. And even though we've seen work like this in the past, for instance, with Rachel Binks's data visualization jewelry, this seems to be of a, uh, a different prominence, not only to the community, the data visualization community, but to the world at large. And I think that's really exciting. We, we have this idea that data visualization is a secondary player. And instead, now it's becoming very um, front and center in the world. And I think that ties into another aspect, which is that um, rather than just being seen as a sort of supplemental skill, data visualization, I think, is finally becoming an equal partner to the other data disciplines in industry. So you see data science, data engineering, and data analytics already being extremely prominent. And data visualization, which has always been sort of presented as a skill possessed by people who are analysts, scientists, and engineers, is now starting to develop into its own full-fledged uh, area within industry. And I think that's represented um, not only by the founding of the Data Visualization Society, which has had an enormous amount of uh, popularity. It has nearly 10,000 members. It might have 10,000 members signed up by the time this podcast comes out. But also the purchases of Tableau and Looker, big budget purchases by major industry players trying to get large-scale data visualization talent and technology in-house. And I think this is in sharp contrast. This might seem very natural, but it's in sharp contrast to the way that people like Stephen Few and others have presented data visualization not as a fully-fledged profession, but as simply a skill. And finally, I think the other major theme of 2019 is the technical maturity of data visualization. I don't think we're seeing the kind of growth in amazing new forms of charts, amazing new tools, amazing new technologies in data visualization. 
if you look at the offerings of BI tools like Tableau, um, but also of libraries like D3 or like Plotly, we're not seeing new and exciting charts. It's not like a few years back when everybody was trying to get Sankeys into their libraries or when people would show a new compositional chart that, that wowed data visualization insiders. So instead, I think we see that people are optimizing now these technologies. They're focused more on how they're being used and how you're designing from the problem space. And I think all of these just added together really point to an exciting new phase in data visualization that's going to enable not just analysts to look at industry data sets, but I think human beings to, to better understand their lives and interact with each other. I think it's going to dramatically increase the penetration of data visualization across professional and social areas. I think we're going to see it just more and more. And I think that... Uh, it's just an exciting time to be involved in this field. Yeah, there, there are so many interesting things that Elijah mentioned here. I just want to say, yeah, I agree with him when he says that we are now in the phase where we are more optimizing than trying to come up with crazy new stuff, which in a mm. in a way makes me nostalgic, but, but it's also good, right? It means that things are getting much more solid. And related to that, I also like this idea that uh, even more than before, this is not limited to technical people, right? And because of that, people are also developing new methods and tools that are uh, specifically targeting people that are not necessarily too technical, which I think is is great. We want to see more of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, Data Visualization Society, Tableau and Looker acquisition. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so people independently yeah. coming up with the same big trends, which is super interesting. Uh, could also mean that we are either living in a bubble or are really well connected. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree about the consolidation and this increasing, like going mainstream. I think that keeps going and uh, is such an important uh, development. Yeah, next up, some science. Uh, yeah. We have yes, finally. You were waiting already, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so first we have Jen Christensen. Jen is an uh, art director at the Scientific American for many years. And uh, we had a whole episode with her. She does wonderful work and has a really, really good big picture view of what's going on. So let's see what she'll have to say. Hi. I'm Jen Christensen, Senior Graphics Editor at Scientific American. To my mind, the top two biggest developments in data visualization as it relates to science communication go hand in hand. First, the increased level of comfort and ease with which scientists are sharing their data. And second, scientists and full-time data designers are speaking the same language in a way that I haven't seen to this extent in the last 20-odd years working with scientists and artists. For example, an article in the January 2020 issue of Scientific American includes a data visualization that is the result of directly connecting data designer Nadi Bremer with computational researcher Jonathan Carroll Nellenbach. Although Nadi's role for this project was as a data designer, she studied astronomy in university. Jonathan was part of the research team that published the astronomy paper that was at the heart of our article but he also produces visualizations as a part of his own research collaborations. Jonathan was willing and able to quickly transfer a huge data set over to Nadi. Nadi was able to efficiently assess the data set and ask insightful follow-up questions. 
Their tools and languages overlap, and the pretense of proprietary information had dropped. I think that we've reached a point where that's now the rule rather than an exception. Scientists have become more generous with their data, and science communicators have become more fluent in the language and tools of computational analysis. As far as the third development goes, I'll have to nod to a science-inspired data viz statement that infiltrated popular culture, specifically Warming Stripes by Ed Hawkins, which debuted and garnered attention in 2018, but really gained traction as a science communication and engagement tool in 2019, thanks in part to the Show Your Stripes website and social media campaign. They are those rectangular visualizations uh, made up of a series of chronologically ordered vertical stripes, colored according to a region's annual temperature. Essentially, every region's version of the climate stripe pattern progresses from cool blue to a warm red. No labels are needed. No caption is needed. It's a visceral and accessible nod to our warming planet with color representing annual temperature. And it prints legibly on everything from social media profiles to pins, neckties, magazine covers, mugs, and concert screens. I think that a central unsolved data visualization challenge in the area of science communication is addressing the fact that data is messy and is an artifact of our own biases. I think that often, especially in the context of science, we look at data as cold, hard, indisputable facts. I mean, I think it's accepted within science-savvy audiences that additional studies will add more information and help shift the shape of the larger data set and may result in shifting interpretations over time. I mean, that's pretty much how the practice of science works. But I fear that we too often create and interpret charts with the sense that they represent undisputable truth at that moment in time. But it really only represents the outputs of a specific line of questioning, or a specific model, or a specific experimental setup. I think that scientists and science communicators need to get better at nodding to those parameters directly when visualizing data for the public. In part to demystify the practice of doing science, but also to provide the tools to the public so that they can become more informed and critical thinkers. But I think that the best ways to efficiently do that aren't yet terribly clear. But I also think that this is a challenge that the broader data and visualization communities have been grappling with as well, as evidenced by the idea of missing data as explored by Mimi Onaha, writings on data humanism by Georgia Lupi and Jer Thorpe, data for Black Lives and its executive director, Yashima Bet Milner, Data Feminism, as written by Catherine Dignazio and Lauren Klein, Action Towards Decolonizing Health Data by Abigail Echohawk, and Visualizing Uncertainty by folks including Jessica Holman, Matthew Kay, and Lise Padilla. So I have hope that we'll get there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, great points again. First of all, I'm super happy that she observes that scientists and designers are sort of still converging and we haven't like given up and, and things are getting like better. And, and my feeling is the same that by now we have, we have the technical tools and the scientists have the design, you know, I by now that we can now really do substantial things together, uh, which is cool. And, and the other thing Jen mentioned is really, I think also really a, a mega trend almost is this, you know, <laughs> like how do we deal with uncertainty 
the things we measure, what do they actually mean? You know, what is truth anyways? Yeah. And, you know, yeah, all exactly. these, these really big questions. And <laughs> in a way that can also be very like challenging, you know, if, if you always question everything at the same time, it's so important to, to really talk about the foundations of, of our whole approach. And I think that's, that's great that it's happening. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And actually, her remark here made me think about while recording data stories over the years, one of the biggest transformation in my mind has been exactly that, right? Uh -huh. Speaking with yeah. people, it's like, oh, data is actually, is not truth, right? It's like, it's so much, <laughs> it's like, oh my God, it's, it's so much more yeah. complicated, right? And then yeah, part yeah, of me yeah. was like, okay, but if something is coming from a scientist, this is much, much more <laughs> solid, right? It's much more, it's right. much truer, yeah. right? Yeah. And, much and no, yeah. no, right? It's not, it's not like that. And I think even recently I've been listening to a few podcasts where there are people who have a very solid scientific background, but they have different positions on a topic. And even there, two experts that have different positions and they are kind of like debating with with facts, quote unquote facts in their hands, uh, they yeah. still can disagree completely, right? <laughs> so it's like, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, and there are also these so studies <laughs> where they give researchers the same basic research task, like written in, in verbal language, and then they they all come up with wildly different methods and results, right? And they yeah, see how, yeah, how fuzzy yeah. things can be in the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think there was a Wired article a few days ago, exactly reporting yeah. on that. And uh, exactly, it's scary in a way, <laughs> but maybe it's also a sign that we are evolving, and that's necessary to to create better science. So it's not yeah. it's not bad. It's not postmodern data science. <laughs> postmodern data science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so speaking of science and research, right? That's a perfect segue for the for the next person. So another old friend of our of our show, uh, we have Jessica Holman, uh, professor at North Northeastern University, and um, Jessica is a data visualization researcher. And uh, not surprisingly, we asked her to comment on data visualization research. Hi, this is Jessica Holman. I'm an assistant professor at Northwestern University in computer science. I also have an appointment in journalism. I co-direct the Mew Collective or Midwest Uncertainty Collective with Matt Kay. And I'm happy to be able to share my highlights from 2019 from the standpoint of Viz Research, which is what I do. So the first highlight I want to mention is kind of most based in a paper from Kai, ACM Kai, Computer Human Interaction from 2019 by uh, Pierre Dragachevic, Ivan Janssen, Matt Kay, Abernil Sarma, and Fanny Chevalier. And this paper basically took this idea that statistical reformers have been promoting that rather than presenting a single analysis when we publish, say, a research paper where we did some statistical analysis, we should actually be presenting a universe or a multiverse of analyses. This idea stems from the fact that often when we're doing a statistical analysis, say we've done some experiment, et cetera, and we're analyzing our data, there's all of these arbitrary decisions that we make along the way about you know what model we're going to use, how we're going to parameterize our model, how we're going to transform our input data. And those can have implications for um, our final results. And so the idea of a multiverse has been promoted by statistical reformers as we should actually be communicating an entire universe of analyses choices rather than just one single path 
through this set of possible analyses. What was exciting about this Kai paper is that they looked at kind of, um, or started to explore what would um, an interactive kind of visualization-based representation of a multiverse analysis look like. So rather than a static PDF for your research paper, imagine that the research paper itself is interactive. The reader can kind of, you know, use sliders or drag over text in order to see the implications or the differences in the final analysis based on things like a different model or a different transformation of the input data. And visualizations obviously play a big role. So how do you show not just, you know, single models results, which is already complicated, but a whole universe of, of, of models. And so they use animated hypothetical outcome plots as one example, um, which is a technique I'm fond of because I originally promoted this a bit, um, where you're showing basically animations where each frame is a different analysis result. But I think there's also static depiction. So how do you create a diagram that shows not just one analysis, but a, a bunch of them uh, and how that impacts the final outcome, whether that's a p-value or whatever else you're looking at. And I think there's also interesting visualization challenges that this idea brings up from the standpoint of helping uh, the analyst or the scientist understand and see through a visual representation kind of the, the impacts of their analysis choices, even as they're trying to specify this analysis. So I think psychologically, it adds a lot of complexity to think about a universe of analyses. How do we help the reader do that through visualization? And how do we help the analyst think through this as well? And others are working on this as well. So Yang Lu from the University of Washington IDL is doing some work, as well as the original authors of the paper. So I think it's an area that we'll see more of. So the second highlight, I think, from 2019 is work modeling people's prior beliefs in visualization. And so this is something my lab's been doing um, for a while. We've been asking people basically to predict what data might look like or asking them to actually give us sort of a prior distribution over what they think are plausible values for data before we show them data. But in 2019, I think there's been several developments to this line of work that I think are exciting. So kind of late 2018, early 2019, Nina McCurdy and Mariah Meyer published a design study where they worked with global health experts, so people who worked with Zika virus. And what they found in doing this design study, trying to build a visualization system for these analysts, was that they often kind of adjusted the data mentally that they were seeing in order to decide what they really thought was true in this case about, you know, Zika outbreak. And so this idea that people, you know, when they look at a visualization, they're not just taking the data at face value, but they're combining it with other things that they know is an idea that I think is is kind of obvious. You know, of course, people have prior knowledge, but the idea that we can elicit this, I think, is exciting. And so in 2019, there were two papers at CHI. Um, one was my student Yasel Kim's paper, where we actually developed a Bayesian model of cognition. So we're basically eliciting people's prior beliefs, um, showing them data, and then uh, eliciting their posterior beliefs. So what do they believe after they've seen the data? And comparing that to what you would expect someone to believe if they had updated their beliefs in a Bayesian way. So we're applying these Bayesian models of cognition to visualization interpretation. And I think it's just, um, you know, it's still work that we're, we're just in the early stages of, but I think it's incredibly exciting in terms of um, how many things this opens up the ability to do. So it's a way of kind of looking at visualization, understanding or interpretation in a more systematic way. So we can, you know, compare to a normative Bayesian standard. If people updated like true Bayesians, what would they do and gain insight into how people are different in the way they treat data? We can also do things like vary the visualization and then use this sort of, um, you know, rational belief updating as a standard for evaluation, which I think is a, a big improvement over things like just evaluating 
need for perceptual accuracy. We can also try to do things like quantify other factors that might affect belief updating, like how much does someone trust the source of the data? And we can even then start customizing or personalizing visualizations based on what people believed beforehand. So if we know that your prior beliefs make you um, unlikely maybe to accept certain aspects of this data set because it conflicts with what you would have expected, we can emphasize that data more or do some sort of intervention. So I think our work um, at CHI 2018 is particularly exciting with first author Yesel Kim. And then there was another paper at CHI 2019, same I kind of idea about eliciting beliefs, but this was by Kyrie Reddy and students, um, Aretta and students, and they basically did kind of a Wizard of Oz study where in an analysis setting, they had people basically make predictions about data, and then they um, kind of simulated the visualization tool, kind of giving people feedback to see kind of how might this affect things like exploratory data analysis. So I think that's all exciting in that it moves our understanding of how visualizations actually work and what we can do with them forward by quite a bit. My third highlight is just the idea that in visualization um, research, we're increasingly trying to partner with areas like uh, machine learning um, and AI. And one example of this that I saw was at the IEEE Viz conference in uh, 2019, back in October, where there were workshops um, in particular that kind of highlighted this. There was a bunch of papers as well, but a couple um, notable talks being Kim who does a lot of um, important work on machine learning interpretability, gave a keynote about interpretability that I think was really great for visualization audience because it can you know inspire us to work more on this. Chris Ola, who is also quite known for um, things like explaining deep learning, did another talk where he basically argued kind of that, you know, we should be using feature visualization. So visualizing features of deep neural nets in order to try to understand kind of the basic units of neural networks. Almost, he made an analogy to like when people discovered the microscope and really uh, used it to to look at cells and, and make all of these discoveries at kind of a, a very low level, like we're in a at a point where we could do the same for deep learning to really understand what it's doing. So kind of very motivating talks from leaders in ML that I think is a a good trend or a cool thing that's happened in 2019. Finally, um, an unsolved challenge. I'm going to point to these discussions um, that have been happening just over the last year that I've noticed a lot about kind of data visualization and power relations and how data visualization empowers certain people and not others. This is obviously like a big topic and not something that I think we in visualization as kind of a bunch of computer scientists are well equipped to solve. But there have been a few researchers really um, kind of bringing attention to this. So Michael Carell of Tableau Research did a keynote at the 2019 Viz conference. It was at a digital humanities workshop but it was basically about ways in which, um, you know, visualization researchers might bring in certain assumptions or kind of biases in how we think data should be treated when we work with people in the humanities and how kind of some of our ways of looking at data, in particular, the way we really emphasize counting and detecting patterns kind of at an abstract level is kind of fundamentally opposed to some of these humanist ideologies, um, things like the idea of designing with people um, rather than just for them. Joanna Drucker also gave a capstone at 2019 Viz um, that was kind of about the same ideas about visualizations are um, often the way in which we think about the designing them. It kind of works against these humanist aims um, or ethical 
um, sort of aims um, that, you know, the way the schemas that we have just for organizing data itself are often inheriting biases or flaws from the institutions that create them. Um, others, Catherine Ignacio has been um, doing kind of feminist critique of visualization. And I think there's, there's other examples as well, but the general challenge is just how do we reconcile and become more humanist in the way we use data and how do we recognize that, you know, visualizations are always kind of biased and kind of begin to account for the way in which um, we're perpetuating biases. So very hard challenge. I don't know how to solve it, but I think it's one that's important. Yeah, that was perfect segue to our previous comments, right? It's exactly about what do we do with the fact that even when we look into scientific quote-unquote facts, people can disagree or maybe even the same type of analysis. If you change a little parameter here and there, you get different results. And so this is this is definitely one of the major trends this year. Like people are realizing how how much harder this whole thing, this whole enterprise is. And uh, yeah, but we're making progress. So I think yeah. that's that's great. <laughs> and this whole idea of multiverse analysis just, just yeah, blew my mind. Exactly. It's like yeah. so cool to say like it's it's not just one paper, but it's like a you know a whole manifold of papers. <laughs> it's so insane and it's it's wild. It's just wild. I love that. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's so funny. So we decided to go in alphabetical order, but now we have the <laughs> yeah. third comment in a row that they all really go hand in hand because uh, Jessica Holman, she ended with mentioning the fantastic data feminism book by Catherine Dignazio and Lauren Klein. And guess what? Lauren Klein is next <laughs> up. Um, she's an associate professor in the Department of English and Quantitative Theory and Methods at Emory University, and she also directs the Digital Humanities Lab. And yeah, she wrote this great book. I think we mentioned it uh, in our conversation with Catherine a few dozen episodes back. And now it's finally out and uh, really highly recommended. Let's hear what she has to say on the topic of data ethics. Thanks so much to Sandra and to the rest of the Data Stories team for including me. My name is Lauren Klein, and I'm an associate professor at Emory University in Atlanta, where I'm jointly appointed between the Department of English and the Department of Quantitative Theory and Methods, and that's a department that combines data science with the liberal arts. My own work is on the history of data and data visualization, which I then incorporate into my own data science work. And with Catherine Ignazio, I've just written a book called Data Feminism, which offers a way of thinking about data science and data ethics that is informed by the ideas of intersectional feminism. I think that's why I've been asked to talk about the significant developments in the area of data ethics, as well as a central unresolved challenge. So I'm going to start with the challenge, which is what ethics should even mean in the context of data and data visualization. So a lot of people fixate on the notion of fairness referring to the goal of making opportunities equal for everyone, or in the case of data visualization, making any particular visualization simply sort of reflect the data at hand. So this is a podcast, so you can't see my air quotes around the word simply reflect. So to be clear about what I mean, it's that data science and data visualization are never neutral. There are choices being made at all times. So we know this intuitively as data scientists and as data visualization designers. And now there's actually a bunch of research that shows how viewers actually attribute sort of undue authority to clean and minimal visualization design. So the big challenge for visualization designers and for everyone working with data 
is to recognize how our own decisions to depict neutrality are just that. They're just decisions, right? And since we're already making decisions, the challenge is to ask how we might make different decisions that could help work towards justice. There's been some great work in this area in the past year, so now I'll turn to my three exciting developments. The first is a new book by Dr. Ruha Benjamin, a professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton, who studies the social dimensions of science and technology. Her book is called Race After Technology, Abolitionist Tools for the New Jim Code, and it's a brilliant synthesis of everything we know about how data and the algorithms they power are racist and discriminatory. You know, I think by now we're accustomed to these news articles about this or that discriminatory algorithm, right? We've heard about predictive policing. We've heard about pretrial flight risk assessment algorithms, even the neural network that Amazon tried to develop recently to screen job resumes. And what Dr. Benjamin shows us is how these algorithms are all part of a larger system. This is what she calls the new Jim code. And the references to the new Jim Crow which is a phrase coined by Dr. Michelle Alexander to describe the U.S. prison system. And Dr. Alexander is in turn referencing the original Jim Crow laws of the post-Civil War United States, which enforced segregation and therefore unequal access to opportunities, even though slavery had been abolished. And so not only does Dr. Benjamin point out how data-driven systems are amplifying inequality and sort of preventing access to opportunity, but she also offers us tools for resistance. And it's a major contribution no small part because it shows us how this resistance can sort of clear a path forward. A second contribution I want to highlight is the ACM's Fairness, Accountability, and Transparency in Machine Learning Group. Um, and actually, I want to talk specifically about the work that they've undertaken in rethinking their own assumptions and exploring their own possible paths forward. So similar to what I was talking about earlier with respect to data ethics, this group has been open to the critique that maybe an emphasis on fairness is actually making us pay less attention to issues of equity, which is what's really required if we're going to work against oppression. And so in response to these criticisms, they organized a conference called CRAFT, which stands for Critiquing and Rethinking, which is the C and the R, Accountability, Fairness, and Transparency. Uh, the accepted uh, papers for the next conference, which is actually taking place in 2020 in January or February, so sneaking in under the wire, um, they're posted online and you can Google them and read about how scholars and practitioners are attempting to revise this sort of fairness framework. So now we'll talk about an actual visualization project, which is Kate Crawford and Vladlum Joller's Anatomy of an AI System. This is a project that seeks to describe and diagram the human labor, data dependencies, and material resources that contribute to the making of an Amazon Echo. The project was published online as this, it's sort of like beautiful and enormous and overwhelming. It's a diagram. Um, if you've ever read, uh, uh, the, the Borges story about the map that is so detailed and specific that it actually becomes the size of the place itself it's trying to document. It's sort of like that. It's also accompanied by a 9,000-word essay. And what it does is lead us through the incredibly complex and incredibly exploitative processes that contribute to making a single echo device. And what the diagram shows is how underneath that sort of small, beautiful, cylindrical object is the labor and exploitation of thousands of people, and also the environment, for that matter. And this diagram is one way to bring that exploitation to light again so that we can sort of recognize what we're dealing with and we can think about how to take action. Those are my three developments. Thanks so much for including me in this end of year wrap up and have a great new year. Thank you. You too. Yeah, so many good <laughs> points. Amazing. And I mean, I think with just the last few years, all these super important issues have, have you know, 
have gotten so much weight and now there's so much like structured activity around it, you know, on this whole topic of biases, fairness, accountability, algorithm critique, you know, this whole idea that we could criticize, you know, these practices in that way, you know, it, it hasn't been around like five years ago, right, Enrico? Well, we had a few early episodes back then. Oh, yeah. I think we had Kate Crawford a few years back, right? Mm. She was already talking yeah. about this. Yes, but now now it's kind of like mainstream, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, the the shout out to Kate Crawford's anatomy of an AI system <laughs> is is really uh, a, a good reminder. It's a fantastic, like huge illustration of uh, how this algorithm works. Definitely worth checking out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the biggest challenges for me in this area is to kind of like trying to find the right balance between acknowledging these issues and fixing them, but at the same time remaining mm. excited about the, the the endless possibilities. So there's right. it's, there's a constant battle in my mind between the, these two <laughs> these two things. It's not it's definitely not easy. <laughs> yeah, but it's like accessibility. You can either see it as a limitation, it's like, oh no, I have to make <laughs> yeah, the exactly. font really big. Or you understand that it's really an opportunity, you know, to do something really interesting and, and yeah. novel also in that yeah. field. And yeah. And like this whole idea of, okay, how can we do fair like machine learning? Yeah. I think that can also be very inspiring, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So talking of novel, right, <laughs> the next person is uh, Martin Lambrecht. He's uh, an independent data visualization designer, and uh, he's another person who's been around for, for quite a while. And uh, lately, he has been working on this idea of xenographics, which, again, is about uh, novel or even somewhat weird or innovative data <laughs> visualizations or data representations. And he created this uh, very nice collection of, of xenographics visualizations. And yeah. uh, because of that, we asked him to comment exactly on, on xenographics. So... Yeah. He sort of nailed that trick of first inventing a field and then become the world's leading expert in it. <laughs> exactly. That's perfect, right? <laughs> yeah. Life hacks. Um, let's, let's see what he has to say. Hi there. I'm Martin Lambrex and I am the author of Xeno.Graphics, a website that contains a collection of what I think are visualization techniques that you don't see every day, but still can be very effective. So I'm a lover of weird charts and data stories asked me to talk a little bit about three significant developments in the area of unusual data visualizations during the past year. The first trend I noticed this year is unfortunately not a very big trend, but I did see some of the charts in the Xenographics collection pop up in the wilds. So there is some adoption of Xenographics in mainstream data visualization, but it isn't really a very rapid adoption. But I still wanted to highlight one example of one of those adoptions, and that is an origin destination map, also called an OD map. That was this summer published by the City of London in their London Industrial Strategic Report. The OD map is one of my favorite xenographics, and it is a kind of map containing mini versions of itself that you can use to show flows of things between origins and destinations. And the map in the report uh, shows commute movements in and around London, and it was developed by Mike Bronbjörk, who does data visualization for the London City Hall. I did see other examples of xenographics popping up in the wild as well. Um, so I'm definitely going to promote xenographics further in the future to have more adoption both by toolmakers and by practitioners.
But we have to be honest here, Xenographics are still very niche and mostly loved by people who are already quite knowledgeable about visualization. So the second trend is a trend I am quite happy about. Xenographics are mentioned in one of the nicest books on data visualization I've seen in the last couple of years, the Data Visualization Handbook by Yuso Koponen and Jonathan Hilden from Finland. And the book appeared this year in English. And I also know of at least one other data visualization book that will be published next year that will also reference Xenographics. And every once in a while, Xenographics gets a mention by some high-profile people in the field, like, for example, Alberto Cairo, who has mentioned Xenographics already several times on his blog. And then there is also Lisa Wananen-Jones, an assistant professor at Washington State University. She teaches an introduction to data visualization class, and she wrote me that she uses the Xenographics website in her class. Um, and in her words, it helps students think more creatively, but also more critically about all chart forms and our assumptions about how things are supposed to be. So the awareness that there's more out there than just bars, pies, and lines is definitely there, especially among data visualization professionals. And then before talking about the third trend I wanted to highlight, I want to mention the, in my view, most important unsolved issue in the area of unusual data visualization, and that is data visualization in education. And this both at lower as in higher levels of education. I think there is more attention paid to data visualization in education as there used to be, but I think we need to do a lot more still to lift the level of graphicacy in the general public in an age where data is so very present in many aspects of life. And this brings me to the third trend. Next to education, we also need accessible visualization tools. And one of the tools I use a lot and that I have recommended many times is Raw Graphs. Raw Graphs is an open source and free visualization tool developed in Italy and it has been around since 2013. And it offers a lot of templates to make less common charts for people who don't code. And the people behind Raw Graphs have just successfully closed a crowdfunding campaign to find 33,000 euros to develop the tool further. So their plans are to add more charts, both basic um, but also unconventional ones, to make it possible to save projects, which at the moment is still not possible, to add more controls for things like labels and uh, a general better performance. So I'm glad that many people see value in a tool like Raw Graphs, and I'm also very looking forward to the evolution of the tool um, in the coming time. I think Raw Graphs is one of the causes of less conventional chart types becoming more popular, and I am very curious to see which xenographics they are going to add to the tool. So those are some of the things I noticed in the field of xenographics in 2019, um, and I would like to thank Data Stories for having me, and bye. <laughs> yes. So we're going to see some of these xenographics being uh, hopefully adopted by several tools. I'm really curious to see what, what is going to happen there. I just want to remark again on this idea of data visualization in education. It's, it's so important, right? Not only how can we create better education tools to teach data visualization, but also how can data visualization be used more effectively in education? I think that's, that there's a huge, huge potential there. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's again this whole idea of also collecting all these weird chart types. For me, that came so at the right time because there was <laughs> yeah. this, yeah, as you say, like this professionalization and the tools and the platforms, but in a way that also leads to this really extreme streamlining of design. I also find web design extremely boring right now. And so <laughs> I just really enjoyed his wild circus of, of crazy graphics. I, I like these types of things. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, let's hope more xenographics. Yeah, are you featured in xenographics? Did you create yourself I'm not something sure. that is? Um, I'm not, I maybe didn't I check. should maybe try I harder. I should there. try harder to do something <laughs> weird. Maybe yeah. I'm, I, I thought I have tried already, but uh, yeah. <laughs> do you have something in there? Uh, I suspect I do. Um, I think there is a thing that is called flow streets that we did uh, many years back, and I flow think straight. it's featured there. Flow streets, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds uh, weird to me. So yeah, so, uh, well the, deserved. The name is weird well enough, deserved. Yeah. Next up, keeping data with weird, um, Maral Pokasimi. Maral is also an old friend of mine. I know her from back in the day in Potsdam. Um, meanwhile, she's founded a couple of studios, done a lot of great work. She was the, she ran co-ran the really great visualized conference series, and uh, yeah, now for a few years she's been in London and does some really interesting work. And we asked her to comment a bit on interesting developments in diversity and inclusion. Let's see. Hello, Data Stories. This is Moral, your design activist from London. Thank you very much for letting me speak on the matter of diversity, a matter that is very close to my heart and a big part and driver of inspiration in my personal and professional life. So I take this with great responsibility. Uh, I would like to first speak about gender diversity in the field, because from my own point of reference from when I started my career here in this field, about, let's say, seven years ago, I, I would like to compare it to that time when it, f it didn't feel like the women were unionized enough as they were today. It feels like the women in the field, they hear each other and they speak to each other more, which leads to creating community, which leads to being a stronger front, which leads to being seen. That's a great development that I can Say, I can see and I think it manifests itself, let's say, for example, at conferences, it, it, it shows itself today by women uh, leading departments, leading big projects, leading organizations, leading their own businesses. And this obviously has been the case five years, six years ago too, but if it's, it wasn't, it wasn't as apparent. It wasn't maybe as frequent either. And I, I personally as a woman today feel a lot more empowered and I feel like What I have got to say will be listened to uh, more than and, and taken more into consideration than if I had said a certain thing seven years ago when I started my career. So in that regard, I think we all deserve to clap hands or like be, be happy about that fact, but not to stop where we are now because there's still a couple of things, of course, that could be improved, let's say. Workplace gender equality is still an issue. So to the employ employers out there, make sure that you make a conscious effort. Keep hiring women. Don't just have sausage fests sitting behind your desk because that's, first of all, you're going against the zeitgeist. And secondly, there is no excuse anymore to say that women aren't talented or whatever because that used to be a misconception anyways. 
and that men do a better job that's that is lifting that thing is, sh- is shedding and that's a good thing so uh for that that actually all the women out there that's all you so clap your hands for that it's amazing on the other hand the one thing that we really really need to do so much work in is to making our space inclusive so it's attractive to non-white people we are a primarily white scene and it's it hasn't that hasn't in my eyes changed at all since I started my career and it's obviously not an issue that is exclusive to the data visualization field but it's one that I really want to believe that we as an intellectual and very intelligent friendly community can solve the only thing that I would always say and I keep saying this in this context is wanting more diversity doesn't bring you more diversity wanting to be non-white doesn't make you non-white you have to make a conscious effort. You have to back up your desires with actions. What could those actions look like? I mean, we could draw inspiration from, for example, Data for Change, a women-run organization that hosts workshops frequently outside of the UK where they're based, for example, in Uganda, in Beirut, and most recently also in um, Estonia, and they fuse local talent with with Western talent to work on data sets that are local to their communities to solve problems that are local to their communities and to create data-driven projects together. The collaborations that happen in that space are, in, are in, incredibly inspiring. The bridges that are built in those events, I haven't seen them built anywhere else yet, to be honest. And it opens up our world to them so they actually get more involved i really think that the the leaders of our field have to use their power of influence in a similar way to either shed light on initiatives like that to give them airtime to speak about this these kind of things that they create these kind of spaces that they create so that people let let people of color from around the world hear it and see it so that people Uh, from religious minority backgrounds or LGBT backgrounds, see it and hear it and feel like they are heard. And that is the most important thing, right? So preaching to the choir is not not going to help. We really have to find ways and channels in order to make others feel heard and not just to be heard. Uh, One good, actually, inspiration in that on that note is um, Zach Lieberman's School for Poetic Computation he told me in a conversation around diversity and inclusivity for in order to get the school for poetic inf- uh, computation to be more inclusive they had to make a couple of design decisions that would f- even be visual design decisions on the website and copy design decisions uh, in in regards of how wh- what kind of language is being used to make the program more accessible to people that are non-white and if you go to their site, you'll see uh, all the talented folks that are there that that uh, absolutely come from all corners of the world. So there's a there's a little bit of inspiration to draw from that, uh, and I really hope that we will see a positive change in that sphere pretty soon, and not just only talk about it. I should probably also say I myself with my friends have started a studio. We are 
queer, we are trans, we are non-binary, we are people of color and we are white. We are all creatives from all parts of the spectrum of creativity and creative talent. And once it's basically once you pop, you don't stop. It's it's it, it feels hard to walk the first step, but really there is so much talent out there and and um to discover new talent is is it can become a hobby. Uh we ourselves when we start new initiatives of projects in our studio we always and always and always have to make sure that the people that we work with are either female identifying or people of color and or people of color, trans people, non-binary people, queer people. And it's not hard. Once you do it, once, once you, once you open up a path, once you open up a stream, once you become a community, and that is something that the data of this community already is. We are a community. We're just a little bit too exclusive. Um, it's possible. It's not rocket science. Thank you and good night, dear people. <laughs> yeah, so okay. nice. And, and she's so right, right? I mean, just simple as that, you know? And we, we all profit if we keep mixing things more up. Uh, it's, it's kind of difficult not to fall into the same traps of going the comfortable route uh, of, you know, keeping things as they are. But there's so much to be gained, I think, if we if we keep opening the field even more. Yeah, absolutely. And we've been discussing these these issues several times um, on the show and also privately. And uh, I think me, me and you often discuss this idea on how do we go behind, sorry, not behind, <laughs> beyond like having, having like we are very much focused on even geographically, right? Where everyone, most people are either from the US or the EU. Mm. And we're like, there must be something happening around the world, right? <laughs> That's why sometimes we organize the around the world episodes and uh um yeah so that's that's even another axis of diversity that is really interesting and there are probably many more and uh yeah i think it's very important to look into that yeah 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 absolutely and in fact our next in guest <laughs> presents a, a new local uh, perspective uh we have mitchell weitler on he has a really interesting uh, academic but also practitioner designer artist um, he, yeah he, i really like his his mix of interests and skills and he's an associate professor in at the australian national university and he wanted to comment specifically on data localism and local projects so let's see. Hey, it's Mitchell Whitelaw here in Canberra, Australia. I'm going to use my vantage point on the other side of the world to talk about data localism, the kind of renewed attention to local concerns and perspectives um, that we're seeing in data practice at the moment. The first one's in a beautiful book that's recently come out um, by Chris McDowell and Tim Denny. It's called We Are Here, an Atlas of Aotearoa. Uh, it's an exquisite work of visualization that looks at the country of New Zealand through a whole lot of different topics, biodiversity, demographics, culture, music, landscape, exquisite maps. But the thing that makes it special to me is the kind of the love, I guess, that comes out in the book. Um, it's of intensely local focus and it shows a kind of depth and attentiveness and a care about place, which I think is quite uh, moving and, uh, yeah, really interesting. It's a big, chunky atlas full of beautiful visualizations, you know, about 
a smallish country, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere with a relatively small population. And yet you know, there's, there's so much love and effort has been you know, lavished upon this. Uh, the visualizations are great, but they're not technically uh, radical, I guess. They're extremely well made and beautifully designed, um, but they are never celebrations of technique for its own sake. It's really about content. Another nice example of data localism uh, for me are Sydney-based studio uh, small multiples. They do lots of great uh, data viz, lots of maps, lots of um, geospatial stuff. What's special about them, I think, is that they really own their position in their place uh, and, and in their local perspective. Um, so they're in Sydney. Um, both Jack Zhao and Andrea Lau, the founders, are, um, are second-generation Chinese Australians, and they take a focus on kind of ancestry and ethnicity and apply that to a lot of the work that they do. Their work is sort of activist. It's focusing on a specific urban context. It looks at, at issues of uh, wealth, inequality, um, social uh, kind of change uh, in Sydney, one of the most expensive cities in the world. And yeah, again, they, they deliver a lot through this local perspective uh, by virtue of their own position in that. The third project for me that's um, really strong and it's not a, a Southern Hemisphere project is from Tiga Brain. Her project Bushwick Analytica is just a gorgeous project that was done at Bushwick Library in uh, Brooklyn, New York, where Tiga worked with a group of primary school kids to develop and then uh, launch targeted ad campaigns it's like by making these ad campaigns, which are gorgeous in that they focus on you know, really specific concerns. Uh, one of the kids uh, makes an ad campaign uh, to try and convince parents to get their kids a pet. Another one uh, targets parents with a message that, you know, there should be no school on Mondays and, and uh, so on. And they come with little drawings. They're just great. But again, it's this specificity of these concerns and often they're very targeted to the, the neighbourhoods that the kids live in themselves shows us how the local can kind of speak back to uh, these very abstracted kind of global networks that um, we find ourselves in. Something that illustrates the change in visualization practice really well, I think, is um, in the work of J.F. Thorpe, I've, whose work I've followed for ages. In 2009, he made a work called Just Landed, uh, which was a Twitter visualization that it visualized um, uh, flight paths or, or um, journey trajectories by looking for the words just landed in, uh, in Twitter streams. Uh, and so it made these beautiful arcs that flew across the globe. Compare that with a project that Jay has been working on more recently, which is called the Map Room. The first one was St. Louis Map Room which is a kind of grassroots community app uh, mapping uh, project working in town halls, working with communities um, to track and represent issues that are very local, issues that are of concern to them, and using mapping and visualisation as a tool for a kind of um, community engagement uh, with their environment. The big bank, I think it was Merrill Lynch, recently declared that, you know, in the 2020s, globalisation was going to go into reverse. Um, and they're not the only person who is saying that. Uh, there's a lot of uh, um, a kind of a backlash against the changes that globalization has seen and we're seeing the resurgence of, you know, kind of nationalism and protectionist trade and stuff like that. So there's a lot of reasons to be sceptical or to be concerned about a resurgent kind of localism. I think that I've got more glass half full than that. John Thackerer for ages has been talking about what he calls sort of bioregional design, which is the idea that a designer or, uh, you know, a creative practitioner should really be in the in the place where they are. They should um, acknowledge the kind of you know 
food and water systems that, um, that their life actually depends on and they should focus on that in their work. So I think there are prospects for a kind of more positive localism coming out of this practice, a localism which doesn't cut itself off or turn inwards but actually stays networked and connected, yeah, which is maybe something to aspire to. Yeah, great perspective. And I mean, this whole idea of, of connecting more to where we are and, and what we do and our bodies and our surroundings, you know, that's, that's been a big theme. And then again, the whole ecological like approach to anything, which you can't yeah. ignore right now, right? <laughs> and if you, yeah, if you blend all that together, I think there could be a whole new, a whole new genre of activities coming out of that. Yeah, no, I agree. It's, it's not only about where, from where a person is is working but also whether the data is actually collected at the local level and there's so much to do yeah. in a global world there is a lot to do locally so that's uh that's that's definitely uh important yeah. next we have another good friend of ours we have paolo Ciuccarelli. An Italian here, yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> the quota Italian. <laughs> so Paolo has also been around for, for a long time. And what I really like of his work he is he's been he's been a core database person for a long time, but always with this very strong design background. And he used to be at Politecnico di Milano. And uh, and now he moved to the U.S. is at North Northeastern University and uh, doing great things there. And we asked him to comment specifically, surprise, surprise, on design. Hello, everyone. Uh, here is Paolo Ciuccarelli from Northeastern University. And the first significant development I see as a designer is a genuine interest in in design. Uh, design as a discipline and. Uh, I see a kind of a quest to try to understand its nature. It's not only uh, about looking at what practitioners are doing. Uh, I see more investigations around design processes and methods, often guided by other disciplines. I see more focus on design studies. I think it's a sign of the time. Uh, times are ripe for a more articulated relationship with data and beyond the technical dimension with the human in the loop and actually at its very center. And... Connected to that, I, I, I see a great interest for, for the humanities, both as a field of study and a source of inspiration for a kind of a different way to look at data. And it goes together with the trend around the idea of uh, humanism of data. And actually, it was really cool to see uh, Joanna Drucker closing the VIS conference in Vancouver this year. I mean, she's the one that very clearly pointed out uh, the human-made nature of data 10 years ago or so. And I'm sure this cultural shift uh, towards the human can only get stronger thanks to big data and the nature of algorithms. And design can definitely help with it. The second development I see, and I'm actually following it very closely in the context of the broader relationship with, between design, creativity, and AI, is automated chart production. And the first experiments are very simple and they could look naive, but it's really interesting and I'm sure it will develop very quickly as technologies in AI and machine learning will do. Of course, I see it more as a push to rise the bar and to focus on what machines will never be able to do and, and less as a threat for our job as information designers. I mean, we don't have to be scared about that and just push and, and rise the bar. And as a third development, I, I, 
I really want to mention the crowdfunding campaign launched by Density Design and the other partners uh, to develop RoGraph and uh, the open source tool that I'm sure many of you know and if not use. And it's a success, actually. I, I was surprised by the fact that it didn't reach the goal yet a few days ago, but then it happened, uh, hopefully. And I see this, the final rush of these uh, recent days as a measure of the interest and the very promising concrete sign of support for a culture of open and accessible resources that are definitely needed in the field. Connected to this, and, and this is my central and unsolved challenge uh, that certainly deserves more attention, is the issue of data literacy, meaning the capacity to systematically and correctly use the basic components of the visualization grammar, but also to understand its issues and, and implications. And it's honestly surprising how simple and reductive that grammar could be. And even within important organizations where people are supposed to, to make important decisions based on evidences and data that are often very poorly represented. A related issue is education in data visualization pedagogy. And I'm seeing here in Northeastern um, disciplines others that then design and computer science uh, starting to teach data visualization in their programs. And I really think it's time to develop, not only here, certainly um, shared frameworks, vocabularies and methods and tools um, to really create a common culture around it. And that's it. Nice. He's so right. And uh, I, I was super interested to hear him uh, mention automating design. That's something I've been thinking about mm. uh, like over this year as well. I had a project that went into this direction and this could be the next big thing. And I think a lot <laughs> of really smart people are working on it already. So this is something I'm really curious about. <laughs> so when you say automating design, what, what would you mean? Yeah, a lot of like design is is actually repetitive tasks or like the, I think that the key in design oh, is really yeah. choosing well, like as you do in generative design, you create a hundred different variations, but then which ones do you pick? And and maybe we can do the same for chart design or UI design or, you know, and uh, yeah, I know for yeah. a fact a few big companies are working on that <laughs> because I'm involved yeah. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, I think that there will be interesting developments there. Yeah. So kind of like making the most tedious aspects of design, let's say, more more automated and also those that are more amenable to automation, right? That's, sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that there's a similar trend in, into this idea of kind of like in data analysis, trying to have recommendation from the system so that you... Yeah, you don't have to do everything yourself. The system is kind of like trying to non-intrusively suggest to you things that you might want to do. Yeah. That's an interesting trend. Again, ties to the big topic, how we interact with smart systems and, and too clever algorithms. <laughs> you know, exactly, like, right? It might be the challenge for the next decade. As things get more and more automated, how are we supposed to interact with them? That's a, that's a huge topic. Yeah. Yeah, just be friendly with the robots. Nothing will happen. <laughs> Do you feel bad when you see those those videos where robots get beaten up? Yeah, that's gonna be a problem. This is this is gonna come back. <laughs> it's <not> my worry. <laughs> they will watch these videos and uh, go after us if we if we keep doing that. Yeah. Anyways, we, we can see what the twenty twenty nine review brings <laughs> in terms of robot wars. Um, but yeah, before so. that, our 
probably final mailbox message. There is a wild card still in the game, so we might be have one or two messages left. But first, uh, from Thomas Dahm on the topic of conferences. Thomas runs an, a super interesting site called Neon Moiré. Great name. Also great purple, <laughs> as we have on the other <laughs> stories. And he's, a, he's just a, a very uh, avid observer of the design conference scene. And so I was super curious to hear what he has to see from this semi-outside view, like inside and outside view, on how the data visualization conference world is currently developing. So let's hear it. Hi, Maurits and Enrico. Thank you for having me. Um, three significant developments in data visualization conferences in 2019. Let's see. The first trend that I see would be that data vis conferences have a good gender and ethnic mix of speakers in comparison to some other design, creative and tech conferences around the world. So that's really a positive thing. Second trend that I see is that there are more and more um, DataVis creators speaking at the more regular design or UX conferences. Good examples are Nadia Bremer and Georgia Lupi, Stephanie Poziak and Mona Shalabi, if I pronounce that uh, correctly. So in a third, more general trend is that design tools and design agencies set up their own one or multiple day conference. Some are invite only, others are with low ticket fees and uh, some have a high ticket fee but give a lot away scholarships. And of course, um, there is uh, the Tableau uh, conference. But recently, um, agencies like UNO organized a one-day conference in Brooklyn. And in last November was the first no-code conference organized by Webflow. And in 2020, Figma, the popular collaborative design tool, is organizing their own one-day conferences in San Francisco. So yeah, you see a lot of happening on that field. And uh, one other trend that I would like to share is that the start time of the events is slowly shifting from early in the morning to beginning of the afternoon, evening, and ends very late in at night. And then um, closing with DJ and VJ sets to give a, another experience and a more uh, party ending of a conference and that over multiple days. So it's more festival-like. On self-challenge, hmm, I think there are a couple. Swag is always a big thing. Uh, everybody wants it and everybody says they don't like it. But um, yeah, swag is uh, complicated. And uh, the only thing that I really can say is that make it sustainable and not too heavy. Another challenge um, that I hear from organizers is that finding the right sponsors is uh, becoming harder and harder every year because of the massive growth of design conferences around the world. Uh, for example, in 2019, I had 150 events uh, listed on Neo Moray and our list is far from complete. Um, there are more than 250 in total. So yeah, it's it's a lot. So it's complicated to find uh, the money and the right sponsors for their events. And lastly, Unsolved Challenge, or at least in my opinion, is everybody is struggling with is the question of do people record the conference and live stream? And I think 
you should do this um, for sure or at least record the conference in total and then share it later the year um, for free or behind the paywall because um, it's good for the speaker to have a video to get new speaking gigs and um, for the conference it's good because they can share the whole year long uh, their content and that's um, always interesting because you as a conference you stay on top of mind of everybody so yeah that's it yes i'm looking forward to all the conferences in 2020 and especially the ones that are celebrating their fifth 10th or 20th birthday like us by night in antwerp and beyond tolerant in dusseldorf and off by night in barcelona people can follow me on twitter at thomas dam or at neil Marais. And I also have a podcast called The Nail Marais Show, where I talk with speakers and conference organizers about what makes them tick. The latest was with Dion Lee. She's the art director at Fox.com Video. On neilmarais.com, you can find the best uh, design UX and database conferences around the world. So please have a look. And uh, thanks again, uh, Maurits and Enrico, for having me on your show. Bye. Yeah, great. Love to have that perspective. <laughs> and I can really, first of all, it's great to hear that things also look all right from that angle. And uh, <laughs> and I wasn't aware of this trend of agencies doing conferences and so on. It's, it's super interesting. Yeah, I think conferences now are, again, I think the trend is somewhat similar here. The main conferences have been around for, for a while. They're getting more and more solid. And uh, I was not aware of this idea that agencies uh, are now organizing conferences, which I think is 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 really good and really interesting. Of course, the, 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 the one of the biggest things here is the Tableau conference, which mm. uh, I have to confess I've never been there, but I would love to. It's apparently, huge, apparently, it's, right? it's yeah. huge, <laughs> right? And it's yeah. a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they organize uh, uh, amazing activities, and uh, every time I see on Twitter comments and photos and videos, I'm kind of like jealous. Seems to be like super fun to 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 be there, yeah. and uh, yeah, and, and it's huge. So once again it means that there are lots of people out there who are uh, either already working in visualization or at the very least they are super enthusiastic about it at least enough to go to a conference so yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's yeah. great yeah the other really thing that struck me is like sometimes people ask well what do you, where do you get data viz inspiration and for me it's really not from data viz you know activities <laughs> yeah. or exhibitions but just the right the neighboring field so if if you look at mm. architecture or you if you look at graphic design or you look at illustration or music or whatnot i think there you can find the, the best inspiration so maybe if you plan your conference year 2020 take a look at neon more and and find something that's not quite data visualization, but almost. <laughs> that yeah, that, be, that's a great could advice. Could be the most <laughs> inspiring uh, environment, actually. Yeah, that that's great advice. I have to say that in in a way, it's somewhat similar for me. I mean, I work. I mean, my research work is 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 mostly in computer science, but I have a similar strategy. I try to look into the tangential. Tan, how do you say that in English? <laughs> similar similar fields, right? Say, so in my case, would be databases or machine learning yeah. or other things, right? It's like, well, what's going on there, and how can I borrow some ideas to do more work in visualization? So I think that's yeah. Yeah. that's great advice. Yeah, and then you can justify anything as research. <laughs> Life is <laughs> yeah, research. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. So I think we're wrapping it up over here. Yeah, yeah. 
It's been a good year, very full It's with been stuff. a good year. Yeah, but I, I found it so by. striking I mean, what, what, that people keep like... mentioning the same things. It's so crazy, right? It's like we 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 try to really like invite <laughs> a wide range of people, and in the end, it's all uh, raw graphs and you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, but I, uh, I like these biases. these like of yeah. like I don't know uh, emerging themes, right? Oh, yeah. This way, we can see that some things are really are really going on, right? And yeah. uh, so some of these things have been. Uh, mentioned by by multiple guests, and these are probably some of the major things happening that Absolutely. have happened yeah. this year. So that's that's great. Yeah. Um, Do we have any resolutions for the next uh, <laughs> something episode? <laughs> no, except um, yeah, I don't know. This year passed by so quickly, and it, it seems like. I can clearly remember when we recorded our previews end of the year episode. Yeah. Uh, maybe we should just say that um, uh, there are still some great data visualization podcasts out there and they are kicking and it is great, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so what do we have? We have Data Vista Day with Ellie Torben. Is it Torben? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have Cole Nafflick, Nussbaumer's podcast, Storytelling yeah. with Data. There's yeah, John Trollis. Policy Viz. Are we yeah. forgetting somebody? Probably. We <laughs> probably forget somebody, but these are those that we had as as guests last year. And yeah. uh I think they're they're doing great. So that's we, we want to see more. So if you're listening to this and you are uncertain, um start new podcasts. Maybe we should mention that uh, Robert started uh, a YouTube channel that is called eagerize.tv. Yeah. Nobody mentioned that. I think we should. He's a famous right? TV star now. Yeah. <laughs> is the yeah, first YouTuber. is the first yeah. right real database channel I'm aware of. So I'm curious to see what is going to happen with it next year. Right. So Robert, yeah. if you're listening get a late night to show this. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. 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 And finally, big shout out and thank you to Florian, our audio engineer, who has <laughs> yeah. just witnessed at least, and if you listen to it, also completed his 100th episode for Data Stories, <laughs> which is amazing. I have no idea how he can, uh, how he managed to cope with us this long. <laughs> I just hope he, he keeps being that stubborn and sticks around for another 100. <laughs> People don't know what happens behind the scenes, but yeah, I can tell you, yeah, every single a... <laughs> episode is a struggle, one way or another, <laughs> even after so many years. So <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So thank you, Florian. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> and then we should we should definitely mention Sandra. So <laughs> Sandra That's is our is significant our, development of the year, right? Yeah. It's probably <laughs> the the biggest significant development of the year. So uh Sandra joined joined our team and uh she she's been so much help and I'm 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 super happy that she's uh she's helping us. And she's also been featured in in one of our recent episodes, uh, so you 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 also had an opportunity to listen to her voice. And uh, but she's doing a fantastic work behind the scenes, including, among many other things, taking care of the 
of the Patreon channel that we have and sending updates to everyone and trying to make the, the show much more solid. Since when she joined, I feel like, oh, this is getting so much better. So <laughs> thanks, thanks, thanks a lot, Sandra. That's that's great. It's great to have you on. Yeah. And finally, this is all building on Destry's fantastic work all the years exactly. before. <laughs> and Destry just had a, a yeah super cute little baby this year. Uh, I think it's springish. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. I've been following it a bit, uh, and it's uh, so cute. It's just so, so great to see. And big shout out to Destry as well, um, who who prepared all this and helped us really get on track with a professional workflow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Semi professional, maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's true. The year passed by so quick. Um, but again, as you say, it's so exciting to also see all these developments and, and the field growing up and, and us being a part of it, like sort of swimming in that sea of <laughs> data busyness. <laughs> yes, nice. maybe we should also thank all the people that all the guests that we had this year. Oh, yeah. When I scroll through the list, I'm like, whoa, whoa. that was so oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great guests. Great listeners, without you, Great there would listeners. be no podcast. It would just be weird. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> and thanks to all our supporters. I think we have a, around 100 patrons or so. Let me check. It that really was quick. our initial target. And I think yeah. after a while, we are we're basically almost there. So thanks, everyone, for supporting the show. That's now our dream is, is, is basically realized. The show is completely supported by our listeners. Exactly. So How amazing is that, uh, right? Yeah. It, it's amazing. I, I can't believe we made it. So... The show is going on thanks to you. <laughs> that's true. That's true. And yeah, really looking forward to next year. We have a few really cool guests lined up already. We have good intentions to keep things mixed up and weird and funny <laughs> and, and informative. And meanwhile, we'll take a little, little break. But yeah, we'll be back in 2020. Oh, man, that yeah. sounds like the future. <laughs> See you on the other side. Then. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> Happy New Year to everyone. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye-bye. Hey, folks. Thanks for listening to Data Stories again. Before you leave, a few last notes. This show is crowdfunded, and you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash datastories, where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters. Or you can also send us a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash datastories. Or, as a free way to support the show, if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on iTunes, that would be very helpful as well. And here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our own page at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.